Wagner here on KZ KGLN. We are getting it right here. Your political Viking out there trying to disrupt and, uh, well, fight the good fight. At least I hope so. But uh, we enjoy your participation in that. So thanks for joining us here today. Uh, if you, uh, by the way, if you've done anything in the last couple of days or recently, like reading or uh, did a little math problem, balanced a checkbook or, uh, you know, had to figure up uh, how many boards you needed to build something, uh, be thankful for that because apparently we are raising a group of children that will not be able to do those things or certainly not very well. And that's a problem because like we discussed on the show before, and I bring this up right off the top, because if a populace doesn't have the ability to gather information, it's bad enough when people are not interested in gathering information or who only, only want to hear bumper sticker type information. But if they really don't have the tools to gather it or that if gathering it is a burden because they're so, you know, they're so unversed in how to, how to use those tools, then something that requires the participation of citizens like our system here really has a hard time surviving. So if you get populations out there who have the vote and can be involved in political situations or movements or whatever we have anymore, mass movements, insurgency movements, there's a whole bunch of them out there, I think, that are going on, and they can't really educate themselves, then they just start listening to people. And so we get the rise of TikTok videos and endless things where people are hearing stuff, but not stuff, and I'm using stuff to include everything, because they're getting information about all sorts of stuff, not just about the political system or history or you know, how you should eat and what things uh, are good for you. And just one thing after another, just from who knows whom out there, because they're not reading anything. Now, it's bad enough what you read sometimes, I understand. Uh, people who subscribe to certain newspapers can tell you that. But you at least are able to read, which means you can go someplace else and do it. I mean, this last week we had some studies that come out. And Betsy DeVos wrote a, a, a great piece out there, apparently, called uh, Shut Down the Department of Education. Remember, she used to be the Secretary of Education. And we have 13-year-olds, which is a really important transition point, as you know. First of all, when you're 13, you think you're 21. Also, uh, that's where you move from sort of a little more basic reading and mathematics into more advanced and then you can start branching off into into definitely more advanced mathematics and higher degrees of reading as you push through it kind of depending on your interest but also it also depend on some sort of requirements by the educational system which i don't know if we really have that anymore you're required to do all sorts of things that seem marginally helpful or in fact perhaps not helpful at all and then the third category things that i think probably in the end, will do no good or give people harmful ideas as they move through life. Those things seem to be mandatory, but the stuff that we would think would be the first job of an educational system, the first teaching that you would want to have people do, uh, those tend to be sort of uh, afterthoughts or cast by the wayside or uh, people uh, in the educational system on the aggressive side of politics acts like those just aren't important. It's more important for the kids out there to, you know, have ideas about things than it is to be able to come up with their own ideas. Some would call that uh, proselytization or propaganda, whatever you want to call it. 
But it's not giving people the tools to learn. They're being taught things, but they're not being taught how to learn other things and then compare the things they're being taught to with other sources and make judgments about it. And that is how you end up with a population that doesn't know what's going on and is very easily manipulated. So when you look at these 13-year-olds, like I said, it's, you know, at that point you think you know everything, you're being changed from, uh, really moved into much more adult type mathematics. The reading becomes uh, a little more difficult. It becomes, uh, more of the classics. I mean, I, this is what it should be. I mean, I know that's not what's going on most of the time, but that's what it should be. And you have the opportunity, if you show some proclivities in some of these areas, particularly mathematics, to take a little more advanced classes. Those are being done away with in some of the larger cities, too, because it separates people out by merit. And, of course, we don't want people separated out by merit. That's not good. If someone's better at something than someone else, then, you know, they may make the other person feel bad. So it's better to hold everybody back. Now, that doesn't come cheap. Not educating people particularly well uh, does not come cheap, especially when we see these kinds of things. I mean, we have had the worth, uh, let's see, I'm reading here. Let's see, the reading and performance of reading they tested is the lowest since 2004. Mathematic performance is the lowest since 1990. And this huge drop in math scores, according to the AP, uh, is the greatest loss, you know, between one point and another recorded since they've been trying to keep track of these kinds of things. So this is a pretty serious problem. But remember, a lot of these schools are spending an enormous amount of money. I think I saw recently or heard recently that, you know, the schools in New York are spending almost $30,000 per pupil per year to educate these kids. Where is that going? I mean, how do you spend that kind of money and get the kind of results they're getting in, the, in these cities, uh, inner city schools, or heck, any of the city schools? How do you justify that spending? And, and how do you tie educational expenditure to achievement? Well, the way you tie it is that you ignore it. You don't tie it to it at all, I guess, is where we would end up. Because if you look at achievement scores from homeschooled kids or from, uh, well, the magnet schools are being done away with too, but charter schools, you'll see a much lower per pupil expenditure and a much higher return of that expenditure in terms of educational achievement. Now that's just, that's just fact. That's not like interpretation or slicing it or anything else. Now, the answer to that in some instances is, of course, the standard answer now is the test themselves are culturally biased. Okay. Now some people in the early 2000s, especially, were going through some of the tests that were given to, uh, inner city kids, uh, that had a lot of questions on them, uh, that made no sense to them in terms of their own experience, things about, you know, you go into an orchard or this, that would, that would just kind of, well, they've never been in an orchard. This is their idea was that the examples used for the mathematical analysis, especially, and some of the reading comprehension were extremely different from the everyday environment of some of the inner, inner uh, city kids, which is probably true. But those tests have been kind of corrected for that, uh, assuming that it was any kind of factor 
if maybe of the most minor kind, to begin with. Uh, most of the time, uh, children have trouble understanding questions because they've not been taught how to analyze the question properly and formulate it so that they can answer the question. And that's also a failure of the educational system. But when you see these kinds of results and you look at the expenditures that we have, it should shock people. Now, many folks in Colorado, where I'm at here, uh, and that's where many of you are listening, uh, got their assessments, right, their property tax assessments. I know we've talked about this before. I think the average assessment in the state went up 35%, some people 50%, things like that. Now, that's based on some crazy real estate prices that came out during the pandemic because these assessments trail the actual time. It's not like that they're supposed to reflect what it is today. So lots of times you have the benefit of paying a lower property tax based on the mill levy, which is a percentage of value, because it was substantially cheaper than it is now. Sometimes you get caught when it's larger. But uh, we're not only adding value to property, but we keep pushing little bits and pieces. I mean, your school district, people who complain about county commissioners in the state and how they spend money and stuff, that's fine. You can look at that. But look at the percentage of your property taxes that go to the county versus what go to the schools. And then the results that we see out of that. And then these new programs keep coming along to fund more and more in the educational system, and we seem to be getting less out of it. It's an inverse well, relationship. You have the power. Actually, we all have the power, at least for a while longer. It uh, seems to be pulled away from us on a pretty regular basis, really by both parties, a lot faster by the progressives and the Democrat Party. But... Uh, a lot of the Republicans or neo-Republicans uh, aren't real crazy about uh, all of all those hicks out there having any power either. <laughs> but uh, they're at least easier on us than the others by far. So after doing that first segment, I thought about this stuff earlier when I was about doing the first segment on this terrible lack of educational achievement we have in our system and how it just it just leads to a downfall of uh, an informed voting public, which means that you're just open to all kinds of bad ideas in government. You don't know what's gone before. You don't know where your own ideas come from. You don't know if they've been tried before. Or just you'd have just nothing. Every day is just a whole new day. You know, it's just uh, every every idea was born today. That's what happens when you have no education and you have no historical background. And as you know, we're very interested in history here. And one of my main problems in life is that I'm too interested in too many things. I, I'm very interested in politics. I'm very interested in history. And, of course, I think those two walk hand in hand uh, down the lane of uh, where everyone's going because politics leads us one way. History shows what happens when politics goes a certain direction. And, of course, economics is behind both of them and driving them along at least to a pretty strong effect. So those three things, those are not something that people should be away from during their learning, and that includes after you get out of school. It's always good to take a little time and keep up with that stuff. But I'm also concerned about how often people in our educational system just have no idea where ideas came from. And if they don't, then they get their head packed full of these nasty, you know, politically motivated divisive ideas about things. You get the 1619 Project. You get all sorts of stuff where these ideas came from. But So I thought I'd talk a little bit about a couple of historical items this time. One of them, of course, is we touch on all the time, um, the, our foundations, which is comes 
predominantly from Greece and Rome, and most of Europe, for that matter, <laughs> same thing. You know, the Greeks pretty much were the originators of this idea of uh, Democrat voting, democracy of the small d. And to make that happen, where I was talking about, oh, democracy, democracy. Well, democracy is a much more generic term than those people who yap about it all the time would say. The real foundation about democracy that the Greeks come up with that changed everything at that time was citizen. Citizen versus subject. Citizens have the right to vote. Citizens have a right to have a say, to take part in their own governance. Subjects do not. Subjects exist for the will of the ruling class. Citizens have right in the political body, in the polis. That was a big deal, because at this time, not a whole lot of that was going on in the world, right? So our founding fathers looked at those ideas and of course, there was you know a fair amount of it going on by then, but you know they they wanted to go back to the source and and understand it. They also looked at the idea of direct democracy, which we've talked about many times here, that it's just a bad idea. First of all, in in a country like the United States, even with just the thirteen colonies, I mean, direct democracy is practically unworkable, uh, where everybody gets together and votes on everything, or at least semi important things. You just you just can't get it done. It, how would you do it? I mean, we're talking about an idea with direct democracy that came up in a city state where you get pretty much everybody that lived in the city in a big forum and then they could vote on things. And there was also the idea that was very strong in there that they didn't want to have the decisions of the day carried by the momentary, uh, anger or hysteria or whatever of the masses. And so representative democracy actually addressed both of those concerns. And so that's what we adopted, smartly enough, right? They also had the idea of the Constitution that came from the Greeks. The Greeks had an actual written document. Uh, it's not exactly like our Constitution, but it was, oh, geez, it's, way, it's called uh, Draco's Law. And it was the first written law of Athens about, you know, this is how we do things. This is not tradition. We're writing this thing down, and this is how it's going to be. That really encouraged them that we had to have a written constitution, because remember, Britain didn't have one, still doesn't really have one. It was all just common law and what we'd done in the past, and it was it was open for evolution. And you see how fast things can go south if you look at the way the law has changed in Britain in the last 25 years. And it's modeled, Britain's model is in Canada, and you can see how things have went sideways very quickly because there's nothing to stop it. It's all just the mood of the day. Yeah, it's representative democracy, but there's still no guideposts. These guys can decide on a time to do anything, and no one can say, oh, that's not constitutional. So that idea that they came from the Greeks and then to some extent later on the Romans with some of their ideas, very important to them, and was not the issues of the day. This was not what was something everybody else was doing. They looked at the Romans, and you know, they had a system ticked under the Republic, uh, that had actual separation of powers. That's where we got that. You know, we have this idea of the judicial and an executive and a um, legislative branch. And we saw how that worked there. We also, by the way, when you study that history, see how, if you don't watch it, how that system all goes wrong, which is what happened. Uh, it, it went very sideways uh, towards the end of the Republic, where the senators and the patrician class uh, began amassing all sorts of uh, money and influence and were essentially running everything through 
nefarious means, bribery. Uh, there were there were thuggish gangs in the streets. It was it was had really went went south on them, and there was no real power to combat that. And so we ended up, and we talked about this before, and sometime we'll talk about it even more with uh, an opening. And they got Julius Caesar, who was not nearly as bad as so many other choices could have been uh, in terms of the kind of government they could ended up with. When you look how that goes, but you know we get a lot from Roman law. I mean. The idea that uh, there's a universal rational law applied that gets to all the citizens. The whole idea of stare decisis, you hear that every so often, you know, that, that it's decisions should stand, right? And the Latin for that is to stand by things decided. And that is that if we have a, a system, particularly in the justice system that's been decided, there has to be a pretty good reason and explanation for why you change that. You just can't get new judges and change everything every single time. So that principle that things should stand unless there is very sufficient reason to change them, these decisions, all comes from the Romans because they saw how that could just turn into everything. Every day is different, right? And it's right at the heart of our, our legal system. These, these judicial decisions, it wasn't codified or codified, rather, but it was at the heart of Roman law. You know, uh, They also developed all these written statutes. They had... Legal professionals, which turned into practicing lawyers, which can be, you know, it's a mixed blessing. And the concept of whole innocent and full proven guilty. I mean, that was, uh, that's a pretty big thing. A lot of societies at this time, and certainly before and, and, and after, uh, had systems that were very much like if you get accused by someone, it was your job to show you that you were innocent. It just made sense to them at the time. This idea that, that someone has to prove that you did something uh, beyond some barrier, we call it beyond a reasonable doubt on the criminal side, uh, was uh, not really out there a lot. And frankly, in a lot of the world today, it's still not out there. We have a very interesting system, and a lot of countries don't like that kind of system because it puts so much pressure on the prosecution to prove something. They have to bring all the evidence. The other side theoretically in our system has to do nothing they do not you do not have to defend yourself in theory they can accuse you of something you can walk in the court and sit down and say have at it prove i did it you don't have to do anything now obviously you want to to question the other case and all this other kind of stuff but that's the theory you walk in and you're shrouded in innocence and the other side has to prove it well that's a pretty expensive system right and it also takes a lot of mechanism juries judges a lot of testimony you know this kind of stuff and it should but that that's not something that you find other places we're very sheltered here when i especially when i look at some of these gen zers and some of the other people in what they say about our system now we're beginning to see the cracks in that system that we have to be very careful of the kinds of cracks that brought down rome and some other societies by the way where the system becomes viewed as completely uh, two-level or three-level, depending on how many people you have uh, that are in power. Everybody expects, and we talked about this before, that it's very hard to track down people who have enormous power and, and influence and then get that influence by position or in our society today by money or uh, they can gain influence by how they get involved in our lives, like, say, the news, uh, or say how we get information like Google or Facebook or things like that. These people have tremendous power, and, and we sense that 
It's a lot harder to capture one of these guys because they have so many ways to insulate themselves from their problems. And we do know that political power behind the scenes is something that is figured into some of these systems. But it's never been controlling. It's never been obvious. It's, well, occasionally it's obvious. But it's never been as blatant as it is now. And that makes people have no confidence in their own system. And then they don't have any confidence in what will happen with them. And then they stop cooperating with the system, pay it no heed, and we end up with a certain sense of lawlessness. And we're certainly seeing that in some different levels. Hi, everybody. Thanks for sticking around with us here as we come around the horn here. It's uh, Rick Wagner. I'm on the radio at Kansas KGLN on the Internet. Same places, sort of, and uh, also uh, on our web page, and uh, which is the rickwagnershow.com. Our Facebook page, The Political Viking, our podcast, which is uh, also found on the Political Viking page. You can also get it on Podbeam, Amazon, uh, and uh, Apple iTunes, So, uh, and a couple others out there, I guess. So I appreciate gotten a fair amount of downloads, so I really appreciate that, too, and I appreciate the listenership. Anyway, this is kind of, I seem to be delving into a lot of history this time. Uh, people tell me they like it, so and I like doing it, so it, we want to sort of broaden things out, don't we? We want to make things not the same over and over again. I've been getting a lot of that. I'm getting kind of topped off with it. I don't like watching some of the talk shows where they talk about the same thing they talked about in the last talk show, and they just uh, you know rewind it for the next hour. And some of them are just, I'm just tired of it. I'm just tired of Sean Duffy, Rachel Campos Duffy, two or three of these other people on Fox that I just don't think they contribute anything. Tammy Lahren, all of which I agree with, by the way. I agree with what they're saying, and I don't mind them in small doses, but eh, after a while, it's, you know. And it makes me not want to do the same things over and over again. And it's hard not to because we have big topics out there. And so people want to hear about them and discuss them. But I, I sometimes I like to have a broader context on them just for myself, and I hope you do as well. And a lot of those are historical contexts. And, you know, the present is sort of like a, a setting in jewelry. You know, I mean, the what surrounds it, the history surrounds it, gives its definition and kind of sets it off to say nothing about leads us to understand how it comes into being. So I, I like to throw that in there sometimes, too. And I like to have some resources to give people because I have a very literate audience, not just because I'm great, but because talk radio listeners and people listen to the radio show and this station are very literate. They read a lot. They think a lot. They have a lot of opinions based on those. They don't just uh, have a bumper sticker, as I said earlier in the show, idea about stuff because I'm getting tired of hearing that. I hear it a lot from the left. You know, it's the same answers to the same questions to the same things. And we're seeing a real degeneration of the political discourse out there, and just discourse and people living together in general seems to be degenerating into sort of a feral society in a lot of these cities. So, And I'm sure it's going to spread if we're not careful. But the cities are just crazy. And it isn't just this feral thing in terms of crime. It's people's behavior. Because the left has weaponized the idea that everybody that's a constituent of theirs is being oppressed. And so they should fight everybody about everything. Because, oh, yes, yes, you're being disrespected no matter what happens. 
If you're not good at a job, it's because you're disrespected. It's because you're being discriminated against. If you don't work hard, it's because you're being discriminated against. You're being, you know, somehow marginalized. And it's made people angry, and it's made them lash out, and it's made them stand up and do things that are completely inappropriate. And they get to say, well, I did it because I want to, I'm doing it for everybody like me. Well, no, I think you're doing it just for you. Uh, a lot of it's attention getting. Some of it is an effort to deflect attention in, the other, in terms of negative attention about someone's actual inability to do something, accomplish things. It's, uh, it's a troubling situation. But I wanted to bring some things up since next week is, of course, uh, you know, the beginning of the 4th of July holiday, essentially. And some of you are going to have some time off. And, of course, you're going to be outside doing things or inside if the weather's, you know, bad, hot, bad, windy, like we've been having uh, from time to time here. And I just have to look out the window and think about going to do something, and the wind kicks up. Now, if I want a little rain, I go wash my car. So, you know, I have control over the weather. Unlike the climate change people, they need to come visit me. I control very, very negatively control parts of the weather. But I wanted to give a couple of things for reading that isn't just some new book out by some personality that's probably ghostwritten by somebody from one of the talk shows. Uh, I wanted to bring some really interesting things up. And one of them is a book that was written, and I think you really will like this, folks. It was written in 1988 by uh, Barbara Tuckman. Now, Barbara Tuckman is a great historian and has written a number of really impressive books. And I may have, if I have time, I'm going to talk about another one called A Distant Mirror. Uh, but this one is directly on point to the United States. And she's written a lot of great historical stuff. It's just really, her research is meticulous, and her storytelling is very good. When you're telling history and how events come about, and you want, and it reads like kind of a novel, that's a great way to learn these things. And... What it is about the American Revolution, and it has it touches on the Dutch Republic, and how the Dutch Republic was sort of a key player in the American Revolution. We don't hear about that very much. We're very interested in France and all these other things, but really the Dutch Republic kind of set things off for us. And that title, the first salute, is from when a Dutch gun saluted the American ship. Let me see that I have written down here, Andrew Doria. Uh, who pulled into St. Eustatius in the Caribbean in 1776, November 16th. And a firing a gun salute when a sovereign powers ship entered the harbor was to sort of just acknowledge that a new country has entered the harbor. Not new, just like it was just created, but, you know, whenever uh, a power entered in, they would fire a salute to the ship that came in. And in the past, people weren't recognizing the United States as a separate country. This was the first time somebody recognized the American flag as a separate country by a foreign power. And it also symbolized the Dutch Republic's support for the American cause against the British. And it's very complex. Right? There's all sorts of international politics that were going on during the French Revolution that lots of times don't get talked about when we're exploring the revolutionary period because we spend a lot of time on our own history, what's happening during the battles and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, the where did the supplies come from? Who was supporting us? What was going on in the sea? What countries were, you know, against us? Uh, especially with all this tumult in Europe that was going on this time, it was actually a good thing for us. And this really shows another side of it that's really interesting. And it gives you a f- real fulsome idea of what was happening during this revolution. And she talks about how there's these economic interests, and they really revolve around things like tobacco and sugar, 
that was taking the position, or rather helped certain nations take positions on the revolution, which side they were supporting. The Dutch kind of pulled on our side because they had some vested interests in our sugar, particularly sugar production, and some tobacco. And the research is really good in this book. And you also get uh, a lot of uh, insight into some of the people that we all know about, George Washington, Franklin, uh, and someone you don't hear about, which is uh, one of the admirals for the Dutch Republic, Admiral Johan de Graaf, who uh, was actually kind of instrumental in helping keep things going for us in, down in the Caribbean. We're so focused on, you know, what's happening in the land warfare and a, and a few naval battles that there's a lot going on we weren't really taught about. And this book just really reveals it. And uh, the historical context and all these alliances, rivalries, and the economic factors that played really a critical and crucial role in our independence. So I'd recommend that. And you can get that off several of these bookstore places, uh, any place you order books from, or probably even still probably available in bookstores if they have one near you. But it's called First's The First Salute. And it's written by Barbara Tuckman, T-U-C-H-M-A-N. And I really recommend it to you guys to read it. You'll really feel like you have a broader understanding of how the American Revolution took place in, in a larger setting. I mean, so that it's not just the land battles and Patrick Henry and Paul Revere's ride and all the things we kind of hear a lot about, some of which we'd like to know more about. This just has this setting of, look, there's a lot going on with trade and economics, and there are other countries out there besides Britain and France and the United States that are involved in this, and their participation has a lot to do with the success of our revolution. And this uh, thing where they fired the first salute to uh, welcome an American ship as though it were a sovereign power was no small thing. And it would be very irritating to the British, very irritating indeed. And so it was a well-thought-out uh, gesture, and that's why she refers to it as first salute. I'd recommend that for you. Make some nice reading over the uh, July 4th kind of holiday period. There's a lot of things out there that help us get context on how we got where we're at. And when you understand how you get how we got where we're at, of course, you're able then to see maybe what things we've done correctly, as well as things we've done incorrectly, that may help solve some of the problems we have now. A lot of the problems we have now are not things that have popped up for the first time. I often think that maybe this is the first time that we have a political party that seems to be diametrically opposed to the welfare of the nation of which it is a part. But I think we had a little of that during the uh, Civil War. Remember the, the Democrats at the time, there was a real movement to have some sort of agreement with the South. This is something that people don't know much about. I, I think most of you probably do. And remember, there was General McClellan, who was not a good general and would not fight. Remember, that was the problem that uh, Lincoln finally got rid of him, uh, because he just would not engage the South in a meaningful battle. Well, McClellan was the Democrat candidate for president in the 1864 election. And had we not had some success on the battlefield, particularly Gettysburg, 
Lincoln probably would have been in real danger not winning that election. But when it looked like we had a big success and that the war could be wrapped up, Lincoln was reelected. And unfortunately, he was assassinated not that long after that period. But the idea of McClellan and that party was to have some kind of brokered agreement with the Confederate States of America. That would have been a completely different result than we see now. And so that, I don't think, was a <laughs> a period in time where we had a political party that was all that on board with the Union. And I don't mean the Union side, but I mean the Union of the United States, you know, the Union of all the states. But we're, we're in some pretty uh, tumultuous times now. This is a time, I think, of fluidity. There's also some things going on that, in general, I don't think we've seen too much before. Now, when, when we look at some of the escapades out there, some of the causes, the transgenderism, the, these kinds of things, this craziness, and we've talked about this before, this happens in societies in history when they become a little too used to prosperity not understanding what's necessary to maintain the prosperity. It certainly happened in Rome, happened a little bit in some of the Greek city-states, these kinds of strange behaviors that people had uh, that became more commonplace. And to some extent were accepted, which is all fine. But they were symptoms of a situation where people were looking for New ideas, new thrills. You know, there's a uh, song from the 60s. Gosh, I wish I could remember who recorded it. You know, kicks just keep getting harder to find. I know somebody out there knows exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> and that always sort of sums that up. I mean, look at what we have now. We have a strange situation where people are trying stuff. I mean, who really had time to try this kind of stuff in the 19th century? Some of the stuff they're doing. Oh, the TikTok challenges and this and that and all of these causes that people are jumping on. You know, who had time to do that? Well, I didn't have time to do that. They were too busy still forging a nation and going through an industrial revolution and creating things that were useful. We're sort of sitting back now and we have a lot of people engaged in things that have no particular use or a use that is pretty minimal compared to the effort that goes into it. And that breeds sort of a fascination with the unusual and the sort of outlying part of society. And we're certainly seeing that. What makes us a little more unique when you look in history is political party that seizes on these movements or these results of society's luxurious attitudes and the idea that people have time to indulge these things, and has seized upon it as a way to further fracture the voting bloc and then empower it, or rather empower themselves, uh, as the protector of all these disparate groups that have sort of manifested things that are really symptoms of a society that's grown a little too a little too luxurious and a little too far removed from what it takes to say, oh, I don't know, 
make things happen, that build your country and protect it. Let us uh, look to one of the quotes I have gone to many times from Tacitus, the Roman historian, discussing sort of the things that he was seeing happen during the empire. So step by step, they were led to things which disposed to vice, the lounge, the bath, the elegant banquet, all this in their ignorance they called civilization, when it was but a part of their servitude. Okay, that was written in the first century, and uh, it's just as true today. So we see that, but it was not really a political lever. And we have that now, which is unusual. Uh, we've reached a point now where tolerance is not enough. Uh, and I've said this for a long time. If you're truly a tolerant person and do not care what other people do so long as it doesn't hurt you, harm you, cause you to be inconvenienced in a substantial way, or I see now that it becomes an impediment to your family or the raising of your children. And, of course, there's too much government interference in that. And when the government becomes fascinated, for whatever reason, with some of these other modalities out there, they seem to not be able to stay away from the idea of, of moving those those movements, those modalities, these things that they use for political power into the systems. And, of course, one of the systems they end up with is education. Because when you align yourself with various groups that have a specific, lots of times, a non-political, but a personal and societal, I suppose you want to call it, agenda, they want constant motion. They want the political party that said it's going to protect them and advance their uh, protection and agenda, and at the same time is fanning the flames uh, that they're oppressed all the time. So they're angry, they're worried, and they want the government to, if they're going to support it, they need the government to be doing things about them. And so it works its way into the educational systems, amongst others, the military, educational systems, the paths of least resistance in some ways. And because we have so abandoned our educational system, just assuming it was okay, uh, and coming up with these ridiculous ideas about it that, you know, oh, well, you know, I mean, it's uh, everybody's underpaid and everybody, you know, is too overworked and this and that's just not the case in a lot of situations, certainly not in some of the cities. Now, you can go into some of the rough parts of the city and I don't think you could pay most of us enough to teach in some of these places. Uh, first of all, it's dangerous. Secondly, is it's just not productive and it's depressing because if you really want to teach, you want people to want to learn and we have whole groups of the, of our population that have been told it's not a great thing to learn that it's, you know, and if you learn something, it's all made up and, you know, it's uh it's a story from an oppressor. And so how, how fulfilling a job would that be for you? If that's what you wanted to do was actually transmit knowledge to people. So what kind of people get into that job? I don't know. It's the same kind of, same kind of problems I worry about with law enforcement. I was reading a, Oh, an article this week, and I can't remember if it was Thursday or Friday, uh, about uh, LAPD standards. I think I posted it on the website at uh, rickwagnershow.com. You know, a lot of the veteran officers are saying, look, we are letting people become cops here in L.A. that should not be cops. I mean, there's even a statement there. And, of course, the uh, 
the upper branches of the department said, well, these are just older veteran officers, you know, like they're stick in the muds, you know, these oafish hicks out there that, uh, you know, down in the rank. They don't understand, you know, that this is all. No, it's not about diversity, although diversity is good in police departments because it makes people feel more connected to them. Um, it's nice to be policed by people who are from your socioeconomic class and or your, you know, the people that feel like they identify with what you're doing. Uh, I mean, not to the point where they're actually identifying with criminal behavior, which has happened in a few police departments. But so that kind of diversity is fine. But trying to fill these positions is, as I've said before, it's a, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy for people who don't like the police. Because you start getting people in the police who are going to start doing the things because you've lowered standards, you can't get enough people in there, you're going to get these folks that are going to start doing the kinds of things that uh, the left, who don't like the police, are accusing them of all time anyway. And they are going to become more prevalent if you're not careful about who you hire. And this is something they're worried about. And then you begin to get more and more of a degradation, which is becomes a, a, you know, a death spiral for police departments, where they start getting a sort of a critical mass of bad officers they get a lot of bad press. They're constantly being reformed. And all it usually does is have a problem with doing actual policing. And it gets worse and worse. Until someone either, you know, gets to a stage where they have to reform the whole system or it just crashes down and something happens. Now, the left thinks something happens and they'll rebuild it in some utopia, which, of course, is ridiculous. And it's also dangerous because... We don't want people to think that they can crash the system and it'll all be better when it's crashed, because it's not. That's not, not how that works. And certainly the ideas they have are the ideas that are going to crash the system. So how can those ideas be used to build a new one or a better one? Makes no sense to me. So the context of what happens everywhere is important. And we have to watch our own institutions. And this, of course, begins in our state legislatures, and our city councils and all of that. There's a lot of states out there right now that are just banging away at the educational system, at police, and free speech. They're constantly trying to find ways to stop, quote, misinformation, which is really just a code word for conservatives shut up. And they're trying to pass laws to make that something's not legal. Hopefully our courts will fix that. Got my fingers crossed. See you next week.